Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joined the show to elaborate on his plan for the upcoming federal election. What will happen if the Kumsa deal isn't ratified before the federal election? And a dark mark for Hamilton this weekend in Gage Park. Uh, pride celebrations interrupted with anti-LGBTQ protesters. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It was an active day here in the city this past weekend. The NDP convention was held downtown. Uh, and uh, one of the highlights was uh, the federal leader, Jagmeet Singh, who unveiled his plan for the upcoming election. And the leader of the federal NDP, Jagmeet Singh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Jagmeet, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you back on the show today. Bill, it's an honor to be here. Thank you, sir. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the who, what, when, where, and why. And maybe the first question is, is why release this now? I mean, we are still uh, some months away, and this is not traditional for a party to release a platform this early. Not at all. I think it's one of the, probably the first time it's ever happened that a major party released a platform so well in advance. Well, we wanted to let people know about our commitments. We wanted Canadians to get a sense of what we care about, what our values are, and really comes down to we believe that we need to take care of each other and that we can do a better job of that particularly when it comes to healthcare, So we made a massive announcement, a major announcement, about expanding our healthcare system to include medication, something that all other major countries that have a universal healthcare system have already done. We're the only country in the world that hasn't, and it's shown because there's millions of Canadians that can't get the medication they need. They get more and more sick and end up in the hospital because they weren't able to treat their illness, and we could have avoided that, and it would have made our healthcare system better if we had. I, I remind people, and I'm sure you're aware of this, obviously, when our Medicare system was put in place in 1964, I guess it was, uh, by the, the Liberal Minority Government along with Tommy Douglas and the NDP, uh, this was supposed to be part of the plan. There was supposed to be a pharmacare program, and they said, yeah, we're going to, it's kind of busy right now, we'll get back to it. Well, here we are in 2019, and we're just now starting to talk about it again. It's, you're absolutely right. This has been uh, 40 years of reports and commissions. Uh, that have all pointed to the same thing, that we need to have in a Medicare system that makes sense. You need to be able to not just find out what's wrong with you, but have the means to be able to treat yourself. To, that means having access to medication. We would save a lot. It would make a big difference in our healthcare system. It would mean a healthier population. It would actually save money for employers as well. By, by including this coverage, it would save from the benefits that uh, companies pay for, which is often the most expensive part of the benefits are the drug coverage. So this is a meaningful plan. This is something very important. We're proud of it, and it's a part of our our vision of a comprehensive health care plan that includes once we once we get pharmacare included, we also want to expand into dental care and into uh, eye care, vision care. These things should all be included in our health care system, and, and we know other jurisdictions where it's done. This would mean a massive improvement in the lives of people. People are struggling. They're paying a lot. And we could actually help people out. There's many people that don't even imagine ever going to a dentist because it's too expensive. And then they've got massive pain and they end up in the hospital again. These are things that we can avoid. As, as you know, though, this is a shared responsibility, that being health care, of course, between the federal and the provincial governments. Uh, any other attempt in the past uh, to, to try to get some consensus between the health ministers or the premiers, for that matter, uh, with the federal government and, and the premiers has is, is been like herding cats. It just doesn't seem to be able to get everybody together. How is it going to be better if, 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 if this is you calling the shots? Well, on this plan, uh, it really just takes having the courage because uh, what we're going to do is sit down with each premier. This is what the conversation would go like. Um, you know, Mr. Premier, Madam Premier, for the same amount of money that you're currently spending right now to cover hospital patients who have their medication covered, uh, for the same amount that you're spending on some marginalized communities like people living with disabilities, for the exact same amount of money that you're currently spending to buy medication, we could cover everyone in your province instead of just the few that are in the hospital. I can't imagine any premier, no matter what their political leaning, who would say no to that, who would say no to a plan that would cover every single person in their province for the exact same amount of money that they're already spending. Uh, that is meaningful. Uh, and that would be the way I'd like to think it's going to be, too. But the, one is always full of surprises, I guess, when those folks get together. <laughs> uh, the obvious pl- question, though, that I think everybody was asking as I was reading through this today is, how are you going to pay for all this? Yeah, I mean, uh, one, I think that if we take a step back, we can't afford not to pay for this. I mean, we're seeing millions and millions of Canadians that can't get the medication they need making tough choices. I met families who say we've got a budget between our groceries or the medication that our family members need. So it's a tough call for a lot of people. Uh, what we're saying is we are going to ask the people at the very top to pay to contribute a little more. And so I announced one of our measures to pay for this plan would be a wealth tax on the richest of the 1%, those who have fortunes of $20 million or more. And uh, with this, it would be a 1% tax on, on their wealth of over $20 million. 
Um, that's net wealth of $20 million. So with that, we've got the PBO working on, on verifying the amount, but we're uh, confident we can raise close to $9 billion that way. And that is exactly what it would take to pay from all the reports and all the estimates we've seen to implement a national pharmacare plan. That would be the amount. Um, and what we would see in the long run, which we've seen from other reports, is that we would actually save money because buying uh, in bulk would mean uh, less of a cost. We'd control the cost of medication going up, which we see it going up year over year. By negotiating with 336 million Canadians using the buying power of that many people, we'd be able to keep those prices in check and uh, enjoy savings in the long term that would make our healthcare system better. We had a discussion on our program last week about uh, about the uh, universal pharmacare program because obviously this is not the first time in the last little while that this has been uh, put forward. Uh, it's yes. the first time a political party's actually put it in their platform, though, and, and that's yes. that's Correct. one of the reasons why it's going to be front of center for a lot of people. But one of the things that I heard and a lot of pushback we got last week when we had the talk is is why does this guy have to be universal? That's going to be a very costly program. Uh, to use your example. Does that same 1% that uh, need the same kind of uh, pharmacare coverage as somebody who's making $15,000 a year? I mean, with just about every other federal government program, there's a, there's a, a two-tier system. Those that are wealthy don't necessarily need that help. Those that do need the help get that help. Why can't you apply something like that to this program? Well, the, the reason why this program works, and this is the reason why we've looked at other jurisdictions, one of the re- benefits of being uh, the laggard in the, in the sense that we're the only country in the world that doesn't have a Medicare prog- or a pharmacare program included in our healthcare system, we can look at other jurisdictions. We found that the most effective way to do this is when we use the buying power of all Canadians. It's actually more affordable. It's a better system when we actually uh, buy it for everyone. So when everyone's covered, it's actually better. We see that when there's a mixed system, the two-tier system, we see some examples of that in Quebec. The two-tier system actually makes it more expensive. It makes it harder to deliver the program. It makes it easier to cut the program down the road. When everyone benefits, it actually is cheaper because we use the, the combined buying power of all Canadians. It also is a program that will be long-lasting. Once it becomes a part of our system, we all enjoy it. We all will defend it. Like our healthcare system, it's uh, something we're very proud of. It's just a missing link into this healthcare system. Everyone should have the, the coverage, and it will ensure that we have a, a more affordable system for everyone. It's just the best way to do it. With uh, federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who was uh, in town uh, in Hamilton this past weekend unveiling their national platform. Uh, one of the other segments that I know is going to catch people's uh, attention here is uh, you say you're going to put a cap on cell phone bills. Now, talking about cell phones and cell phone rates is, is akin to Mark Twain's comments about the weather. Everybody talks about it. Money <laughs> seems to be able to do much about it. Uh, where others have failed, how can an NDP plan be successful here? Well, uh, to be really frank, the the big so what we've seen is the big telecom, the major telecom companies in, in Canada, have enjoyed a free reign under liberal and conservative governments. They basically let them do whatever they want. And as a result, we are paying the highest cell phone and data prices in the world. And then folks will say, well, what about the geography? Canada is really a big country and you know, a sparse population, not densely populated. And we point out examples like Finland, similar demographics, uh, country, sparsely populated. And Australia, they pay far less. In fact, Australia pays half the prices that we pay. And so it's really come down to the federal government, uh, Ottawa, in, in governments in Ottawa, the Liberals and Conservatives, haven't had the courage to take on the big telecom. Uh, what Australia did to bring down the prices, they put in a price cap. Uh, in fact, the United States put in a price cap on cell phone bills. It brought down the prices and made it more affordable. We believe it's possible. We need to have the courage to do it. And New Democrats and me as leader, I am ready to do that. We're, we're going to take on the telecom companies and say, you have been charging Canadians far too much. You've been gouging Canadians, and it ends. What about expanding the coverage, though, Jagmeet, uh, which is something that has been discussed in the past. Uh, you talk about the big three who really seem to control things. I don't know if you can call th- big three a monopoly, but it seems to be that way. Uh, because <laughs> anytime much, yeah. anybody else tries to come in here and say, look, we can be part of this, uh, Verizon down in the States, and there are others besides yeah. them, uh, the, the federal government slams the door on them. Uh, are you open to, to opening the borders to, to more competition? Absolutely. We need to have more competition. There's no question about it. Uh, but I would go a step further. Uh, Bill, one of the reasons why we're not able to bring in the competition that we see in other jurisdictions, like in the States, is because there's a, uh, there's a certain regulation that needs to be strengthened that allows uh, a new competitor to come into the market and use the existing infrastructure. To put it in a simple way, right now there's a bunch of roads that have been built by cell phone companies, and um, we, we are not allowed, a new company is not allowed to use those roads. They have to build their own roads to be able to build their cell phone company. But in the States, uh, the companies that have built the roads have to allow com- competitors to rent out those roads to be able to bring in their competitive service. 
what we want to do is essentially say people are struggling with the cost of their cell phone bills. They're paying the highest rates in the world. That needs to end. We need to put people first. And when we put people at the center of the work we do, we will get better results. And I'm confident we can bring the rates down by some of these changes. We can make uh, data more affordable. And we know that we're only going to need it more and more because uh, the changing workforces require access to the Internet, work and education, um, whether you're accessing services, healthcare, more and more people are relying on data, not less and less. So we need to make it more affordable. Well, that's not unlike what uh, the federal government uh, back in the day had to do with Bell Telephone, who had, a, of course, a monopoly on that service, and they finally ordered that you have to share your towers, you have to share your, your, your infrastructure exactly. with everybody else. Exactly. So it is doable. That's, Bill, that's a perfect example. It is doable. In fact, we just uh, we look at other jurisdictions. This has been done. This regulation that allowed the infrastructure to be used by competitors was done in the States to great effect. It brought down rates. They've got unlimited rates that are far more affordable. In fact, I know people who are in the trucking industry that uh, buy cell phone plans from the states because it's just so much more affordable. That shouldn't be the way things are. We should be able to have affordable coverage in Canada that Canadians can rely on, that people can say, you know what, I can get my cell phone coverage here and it's affordable and gives me the service I need. Uh, lots of other stuff to talk about, but our time is short. A couple more here I'd like to get to. And I know we'll have a lot more time to talk about this between now and the yeah. election day. Uh, you want to also uh, institute a watchdog to investigate gouging complaints when it comes to gasoline prices, uh, which is another pocketbook issue that's going to, I think, uh, have a con- uh, some sort of an impact on a lot of Canadians. They'd like to see this. How is this going to work, and, and how effective could it actually be? Well, we've seen uh, with, with watchdogs in the past, when you, when you add some transparency, it can do wonders to making sure prices are, are set fairly. Um, folks have always felt that uh, prices kind of go up on a long weekend, they go back down afterwards, and it seems to be that there is something going on, and we want to be able to track that better. So what we're hoping to do is using our power at the federal level to, to put an eye on this and see what is going on. Uh, are prices being fixed? Is there inappropriate um, breaches of the competition rules? And we're hoping that using the ability to monitor prices at the federal level across Canada, we can get a better sense of if, if that's happening, and then we can clamp down on it by raising awareness about it and giving provinces that information so that they can use their tools. Uh, some of this is a provincial matter, so we've got to work with provincial partners. But I think really it is, when you shed light on something, it helps um, dispel some of the, the bad practices. And I think that's what's going to happen here with our, our program, our, our initiative to have a national watchdog on on gasoline uh, price gouging. Well, and you obviously that discussion has to include some of the, the hanky-panky and sleight of hand that those companies put forward. In other words, hey, we have to do maintenance. Yep. Uh, and it's it's not so much the, the production, I guess, of the, of the fuel, but a lot of the time it's the refining uh, mechanism that's supposed to be happening, and they seem to drag their heels on that, and bingo, there goes the price. Right, right, and that's, and that's exactly it. And, and we're really concerned, particularly given when we're at a historic low when you actually look at uh, per, per barrel prices, uh, but despite that, we're seeing record high gasoline prices. So it just somehow doesn't really add up. And I think people are really frustrated about that. And so we want to be able to put some federal scrutiny and see what we can do to, to raise some awareness and some attention on this. And, and I'm very confident, like we've seen in the past, when you put some attention and you are able to show some more transparency, it really uh, discourages some of the bad players and the bad actors. All right, uh, just one last thing here before we finish off this segment sure. anyway. Lowering the voting age to 16. Uh, very interesting yes. debate, very interesting discussion. Uh, I guess yep. the first question is why 16? Why pick that number? Uh, well, the reason why 16 is we're hoping to incorporate it into high school. And, and the reason why I think, uh, we again, looking into some other jurisdictions for, for help on this, we're seeing less and less civic engagement. And, and one of the arguments is if, if it's included as a part of the education curriculum, which it is in most provinces, there is a civics engagement. There is a part where you discuss politics and discuss parties. There isn't a way for them, those students to exercise that, that knowledge. If we have high school students learning about the Constitution, learning about civics, learning about political system and engagement, and then they also get to vote, I think we'll see higher turnouts for voting it's a way of shifting the culture a bit and getting people more used to voting. And it's a way to, uh, this is where people are more likely to vote. When you're in high school, you're normally uh, in a stable home, you're at home. But once you maybe go away for school, once you graduate from high school, you might go away to college or to university. And then you're not sure where to vote. You don't have the same familiarity. You're not with your family. So we're thinking that this would be a good way to increase voter turnout and get more young people voting. Well, there is a companion question to that. That uh, it's just it's out there, and I got to ask it: uh, Would yeah. an NDP government take another run at electoral reform? Then, 
Yes, uh, actually, we put it in our platform as well. Uh, our position is we would just implement it. We would implement electoral reform. Uh, mixed member proportional is the system that we prefer. We would um, implement it, and then after it's been implemented, uh, give uh, citizens the chance to weigh in on it and see if they want to keep it or not. Uh, similar to how it's been done in other jurisdictions where it's been brought in, and then folks can see if it works, and then afterwards it's a referendum. And we found that, well, the history has shown that when it's done that way, resoundingly people accept it because it's a system that works. Uh, without having seen how it works, people are nervous to bring in something new. And we know that the first-past-the-post results in very unfair outcomes. So you get far less than the majority of the popular vote, but you get the majority of the power. Uh, that just is a, an unfair outcome that should not occur. So that's what I'd like to see happen, and that's what we're going to do. Uh, lots more to talk about, but as we say, not until uh, the third week of October that we actually go to the polling stations. <laughs> so we've got a lot of time to do this. I know you'll be back in town in the, in, in, many we'll, times during we'll the be. campaign, and uh, we'll hook up then. Jagmeet, thank you so much for the time. Great having you on the show today. Thanks, Bill. Great having you on as well. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh unveiling their program and their policy and their platform, basically, for the upcoming election. Uh, we'll await the response we get from the Liberals and the Conservatives and the Green Party, certainly in the uh, weeks ahead. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday on uh, the uh, Global News Show, uh, West Block, uh, Mercedes Stevenson uh, had, as one of her guests, Goldie Hyder, who is the president of the Business Council of Canada. And Mr. Hyder uh, expressed some concern uh, on behalf of businesses right across Canada, as a matter of fact, that uh, this uh, new NAFTA deal, which has a different name depending on which side of the border you're on, uh, may be in peril. And if it doesn't get done by the end of this year, it may not get done at all. Uh, now, they went through some reasons as to why they feel this way about this. But uh, to put this in context, a much different situation here in Canada than there is in the United States. But I think there is still probably some concern uh, that uh, this deal may not happen. Joining us to talk about that uh, and the nuances that are involved in it, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Good School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Marvin, great to have you back on the show. How are you doing today? I'm glad to be here. A week ago I was in Italy, and now I'm on your show. It's just perfect. It just doesn't get any better than that. Not at all. Okay. I, I know you want to get over to the Parade in Toronto, so we'll get this on the too. Interesting concern, though, from Mr. Hyder about this, right. and, and we've talked about the concern for businesses now, but I think maybe to put this in context, we should explain that there's a very different scenario here in Canada than, than there is in the States about the possibility of this thing pa being passed or not passed. Right. So let, and let me phrase it a little differently. In, in the interview yesterday uh, on, the, on the Global News Show, he said if this doesn't get ratified by the election, then he was quite worried. And I think when you hear that, most people assumed he was talking about the Canadian election in the fall. I don't think that's the election he's referring to. He's referring to the uh, elections next year in 2020 in the United States, not just for president, but for the House and one-third of the senators. Um, it, because, you know, a new administration, whether it's led by a different president or a different House, different Senate, they may not get this thing done at all. So he feels there's this window probably on the order of about 12 months Canada has said that right now, for instance, the bill to ratify this is in second reading. We in Canada, we have to do it three times. Uh, third reading likely won't happen this week, but Justin Trudeau is prepared to recall the House uh, later on this summer to have a special sitting to approve this. So ratification in Canada, I don't think he has to worry about. Ratification in Mexico, again, the bill is going through there. Uh, they're approving various things, and, and I think that's going to get done. The big question really is the United States. They haven't even really begun to have hearings on this. This is normally the process. The Senate holds hearings. The House holds hearings. Then a bill gets drafted, and, and various things begin to happen. Nancy Pelosi has been very, very slow. It does cause her tremendous problems because she doesn't want to be seen as anti-business going into 2020 in the American election. Ooh, don't want to do that because you know, business people, not only do they vote, but they contribute money to your campaign. So she can't be anti-business. And yet, on the other hand, she's not trusting of Trump. And so they find various excuses. The biggest one at the moment is that there are not enough safeguards in the new NAFTA um, around Mexican uh, employment rules to make sure that American workers are not at a disadvantage to Mexican workers. But, uh, you know, I think uh, there is effort going on right now. Mr. Lighthizer, the key negotiator, is meeting with Democrats in small groups. He's meeting with Nancy Pelosi. There is a lot of attempt to get this thing moving by the fall. 
but I think Mr. Hyder has a very good point. If this doesn't really get done by, oh, let's say a year from now in the United States, then I don't see anything happening uh, before the election, and then all bets could be off at that point. Yeah, I've, I've had some discussions with uh, MPs, actually government MPs and opposition MPs, and uh, they're uh, pretty much assured that they're going to be back in sometime in the summer to, just to do this one particular piece of business, and uh, which I don't think is going to be much of a problem, because as we've talked about in the past, uh, despite a couple of, of, of things here, there, and everywhere in the deal, the, the conservatives and the liberals are pretty much on the same page, and I, in other words, supportive of this. So, and they've got liberals still have a majority government until the house is dissolved anyway. So this, right. that's not going to be much of a problem, is it? Right. No, I, you're absolutely right. And the conservatives, again, they, they have the same problem that the Democrats have in the United States. They certainly don't want to be seen as anti-business. They don't want to be uh, not voting for something that's good for business. After all, conservatives are the party of business, so to speak. Um, but I think what you'll see is Andrew Scheer, you know, pick on some things. Well, Mr. Trudeau, why did it take you so long to do this? Why did you do this? Why did you do this? He's got to get some political hay out of the process. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, on the other hand, it's not in his platform that he released yesterday in Hamilton. Um, but I, I get the impression that he would probably vote against it. He and his party, the NDP, would probably vote against it. Uh, for the same reason the Democrats are having problems in the United States, doesn't think there's enough protections for for workers, after all, the NDP have uh, close alignment, if you will, to the labor union movement, and so they want to be seen as pro-worker, and they don't think there's enough in this. Uh, so I don't. I wouldn't be surprised to see him vote against it, but I don't think there's going to be a big ratification problem here. It is simply a procedural one. When the Liberals introduced the bills to approve this just at the end of May, there wasn't really enough time to get this done before the House rises. Typically, our House rises now and would reconvene just after Labor Day, but in just after Labor Day, we'll be in the election run-up. But I think they will call a special session just to get this done. Yeah, I, I, the reason I just talked to Mr. Singh a couple of minutes ago here about that platform, I didn't even bring up the NAFTA deal because I just know that the NDP are philosophically seemingly opposed to, to, to free trade deals of any sort. So, I mean, I, I just figured it's a done deal that they're probably going to oppose this. Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say they're against trade. What they're always concerned about is trade at what cost, and are we giving away too much? And, and, and this is a common feeling, Bill. Many of your listeners would certainly feel that with the old NAFTA agreement, many people believe Canada lost more than it won because jobs went off to southern United States or into Mexico and what have you, manufacturing jobs went and did those things. I would tell you when we study it, we actually do feel Canada gained more than it lost. But to say that there were no losses, that would be incorrect, too. So I know where Mr. Singh is coming from on that. But I think Mr. Scheer, I, I don't see this as being his big issue. He's got other things that he would like to remind Canadians about. I don't think free trade is going to be it. Okay, let's let's focus a little more on the other side of the border then, because sure. that seems to be where the, uh, you know, the, the problems are going to yep. come. And there are already some problems there that could get an awful lot worse. Uh, and you talked about the conundrum that uh, the, the, the House is in right now about trying to actually get this thing on the floor. Uh, it wasn't until about 10 days ago that Nancy Pelosi even talked about uh, ratifying this deal. All of a sudden, it seems to be on her mind. What changed that? Well, I think, again, the, the looming 2020 elections, you know, the, uh, let's just make it very clear. The United States is very much a two-party system, Democrats and Republicans. There's an awful lot of gridlock because they fight against one another. We call that bipartisanship. Uh, or excuse me, not by, we call it partisanship. Bipartisanship is when you put your party efforts beside and try to do what's best for the country. Uh, so she's trying to manipulate the Democratic Party to be in a position to not only reclaim the presidency, but maybe the Senate. And how does she do that on this issue? To date, she had ignored it, hoping maybe it would go away or, or maybe Mr. Trump would shoot himself in the foot. But it, this is a substantive piece of legislation that the Trump administration has completed. I would tell you again, I know many people uh, might want to disagree with me, but I, I actually think this is a good renegotiation of the NAFTA deal. We modernized it. No, we did not give away the kitchen sink and everything else in getting the deal. That's what Mr. Trump would want you to believe, that he had everybody over a, a barrel and they all had to cave in. But really, it, it is truly just a modernization of the NAFTA deal. I'm, I'm really feeling pretty good about this. So she, she is... Um, She's trying to figure out a way forward. And I think the other problem she has is there is people within her party that, of course, want to focus instead of passing legislation on impeaching President Trump. And many people in the United States view that as a negative move. Even if he's guilty of something, how does that help me in Indiana? How does that help me in Montana? The, the stuff going on with China, the trade war there is not helping me. Come on, do something to help me. 
And I think she can see this and maybe spin this in a way that says, we're hearing your concern and we're going to try to help the uh, American uh, economy by getting this thing through somehow. The question now is, how does she do that? You mentioned about their process. Ours, of course, is first, second, third readings, and then royal assent if it passes. Uh, that's the, the, the thumbnail sketch, I guess. Yep. Hearings down there. And I've already heard some uh, congressional uh, members, not leaders necessarily, but some of the members uh, that may be on some of those committees saying, well, there's some pieces of this we may want to rethink and maybe modify. Uh, that's off the table, isn't it? <laughs> well, I always love it when they say that. So what Mr. Lighthizer is trying to explain in small meetings is what can and cannot be done. Uh, uh, back in November of 2018, the President of the United States, the President of Mexico, and the Prime Minister of Canada signed a framework. And that once it was signed, that's the deal that we have to take for ratification. So I think what Mr. Lighthizer is saying, look, uh, if you have this concern, here's how I can deal with it, but I'm not going to deal with it within the NAFTA deal itself. We'll negotiate a side deal or we'll have something else. For instance, Bill, I think many of your listeners would know that at the same time that we uh, renegotiated NAFTA, we signed a separate deal with the United States and Mexico around cars and the building of cars. And in that deal, we actually put a quota on the number of Canadian cars that would come into the American marketplace. Now, the, the quota we set is well above our current levels, so I, I don't think it's going to have any big impact on the auto industry for the time being. But that was done in a side deal. And I think what he's going to try to do, Mr. Lighthizer is going to try to do, is he meets with Democrats is to say, give me your concerns, and I'll tell you how we can handle them, but we'll have to handle them outside of a NAFTA. And now the question then becomes whether those uh, Democrats would trust Mr. Lighthizer. And I'm saying it to you like that, Bill, because I don't think there's any trust with Mr. Trump. But Mr. Lighthizer has proven to be a very straight shooter uh, in terms of an administrative official, someone that they can really trust. And now I think if he sells his personal credibility here, there is some chance the Democrats might say, okay, if you do this on the side, then I'll give you this other deal over here. And that's the kind of horse trading that's going on this summer. The other one is, excuse me, this is quite frankly, it's the politics involved here. And as you mentioned, uh, the presidential election in November of 2020, uh, there was some reticence on behalf of Democratic leaders uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Marvin, to, to actually move forward on this because they don't want to give Trump a victory that he can crow about once the camp. Well, I guess the campaign started the minute he took office uh, two and a half years ago. But it's it's there, and you know darn well that he would take full advantage of that, uh, which they don't want to see. So is, is that going to be a contributing factor, or can they just push that aside? Well, what they have to try to find a way to, to claim the victory for themselves. So... It, or then at least it becomes a discussion point. Sure, you got something, Mr. Trump, but it was us who got this and that and something else for the American people. So they're going to try to find a way to horse trade it. But I think the flip side of this, Bill, is if they don't give a Trump a victory on this, what signal does that send to the business community? If you say, ah, look, you know, we stopped it, we didn't approve it, the business community is going to say, well, then why am I going to contribute to your campaign? You're no friend of business at all. That's the dilemma that they have, and I think they're trying to find a way to, to sort of have their cake and eat it, too. In other words, slow up Trump. Don't simply rubber stamp what he's done here, and yet at the same time, don't lose sight of passing something that would be very good for business. The Presidential Budget Office... Uh, in the United States, that's an impartial group of people who study these things, have made it very clear that the new NAFTA is a good deal for the United States. It is going to generate economic benefits. So you, you don't want to be seen as standing in front of that. And that's this this line they have to walk as they go through this. As uh, the the congressional leaders uh, start to go through this process, uh, how much pressure are they getting from, from other politicians, the state and, and, for that matter, local politicians? Because uh, there's been a lot of lobbying going on. Right. Uh, so uh, I think that's a very good comment on your part, Bill. Canada's strategy to this right from the beginning was to not simply talk to Mr. Lighthizer, the trade representative. They have been talking to anyone who would listen. So Canadian representatives have talked not just to the House of Representatives and Senators, but to governors in, in, in I would say, every state of the Union. They've talked to mayors in many of the, the states in the, around this way, because Canada... Uh, more so than Mexico, is the most important trading partner for around 36 of the 50 states in the United States. There are 10 of the states in the United States where Mexico is the most important trading partner, but Canada certainly plays big. And we got them on our side. Now, of course, that we're saying we want to ratify this, we have to go back to them with that message and saying, I know you have some concerns, but let me give you our point of view on this. And I, I, I think all of them will be chipping into this discussion as we go. 
But it is a huge political football. Uh, it is very difficult to um, uh, ratify these treaties. That's why many people have said Mr. Trump actually lost a window. Uh, up until the elections of 2018, the Senate and the House were strongly Republican. In theory, a Republican president who negotiated a new free trade deal could have fast-tracked that and got it all approved. But because he took more time trying to get, quote, a better deal for the United States or a bigger victory for himself, he lost that. And now it's a much more of a stick-handling issue trying to get this all through. And yet I still feel like Mr. Goldie does that I think something good is going to happen on this. This is so important uh, that even the, even the House uh, Democrats realize there's, there's a global statement here about uh, the United States doing business in the world in the 21st century. So I think something will happen, but there's got to be a little bit of backyard maneuvering to make it all work. Which is still questionable because of the, the polarization that's going on yep. politically down there. I mean, as, as you mentioned a minute ago, there used to be bipartisan efforts a lot. Uh, I'll, I'll use all the cliches, reaching across the aisle, all of that stuff. Right. Uh, between Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer now, the Democratic, and of course the House leader in the Senate, uh, not much of that, if any of that, going on right now. <laughs> Well, it, certainly no. It's, it is not. Uh, it's not like, say, it's the Reagan years, or or even in the in some of the Obama years, where there seemed to be people on both sides of the house who could say, "Look, this is important. Let's put our petty politics aside." But um, having said that, I don't want to give you the impression it's a slam dunk bill. Uh, I would probably put passage on the rate of about seventy percent at this point. There's a thirty percent chance it would fail, and if it did fail, what does that mean? Well, it would then fall to the next administration, and so I would be listening very closely to uh, the Democrats who are running for office. I'd be listening to some of the key senators. What are they planning to do if this does fail? But there is a 70% chance that they'll, they'll get this together and make this happen, and, and I guess I'm being a glass-half-full kind of guy. For the moment, I'm going to focus on that 70%. All right, just back to, uh, to Mr. Heider's concerns that he expressed yesterday right. on the program. Uh, and if this goes to one of the mantras that you've been telling us about for years, Marvin, business and markets don't like uncertainty. We have uncertainty right now. Is, is this going to have an impact on business and the markets, which is going to have an impact on us? Yeah. So uh, I guess the answer would be yes, but Bill, in a small way, the uncertainty that's got the market roiled up at the moment deals with uh, American-Chinese trade. Now, I will admit I've been in uh, Italy for the last couple of weeks on a, on a lovely vacation, so I haven't quite had my finger on the pulse of this. But when I last looked at that file, uh, still far from certainty about how all of this was coming together between yeah, China. I'll give you an update. It's not going well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hadn't thought it was. Uh, and I think that's the part that's got the market scared at the moment. China, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars of trade, uh, yes, Canada, United States' single largest trading partner, but China is almost now at the same size. And when you have that much uncertainty, and of course the the risk of more tariffs and counter tariffs and and you know other kinds of challenges, it, it it's not a happy time. That's the part that's got the market um, upset, worried, concerned, and watching every day to 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 measure those tea leaves to see which way it's going. This would add fuel to the fire, but I think for the moment it's, it's not on the front burner in the minds of most American business people. In fact, I would say most of them think it's a done deal. We're, now, we're not talking negotiating anymore. We're talking ratification. So, hey, how hard can that be? But I think in terms of China, we don't even have anything close to a deal or any kind of thing to ratify. That's got them much more upset down south of the border. Uh, and to your point, uh, the, the dip that the American markets took about a week or so ago uh, was more to do, I guess, with the tariffs and the Chinese than it was to do with this. Yeah, they, they just, it doesn't register on their window because, you know, they had the big handshake in November, right? So, oh, mission accomplished, deal done, we're into the mop-up phase. So I think in, in, for most American business, they, they have not seen a problem on this file. It's the Chinese file that's got them more concerned. Or, frankly, the other file that's got everyone concerned is the future of Brexit and what's going on. As you know, Britain's going through a change in leadership of the party, big debate on the weekend. Uh, that's got people more concerned. Free trade, though it's not been ratified, I think it's off most people's radar south of the border. Just very quickly, if this doesn't go well, and obviously Trump wants this, he needs this victory, one of the things that he can put into his platform, a, a scorned Donald Trump uh, can be very erratic. Is there a concern that he may go back to terrorists or something like this just to, to punish people? Yes. Well, uh, you know, that's the great thing about the one, one predictable thing about Donald Trump is that he is unpredictable. In theory, at least when it comes to Canada and the United States, uh, tariffs should be off the table. 
he, he has said as much. He has said he's got what he's wanted and, and so on and so forth. We're no longer the national security threat that he, he once thought we were. We, by the way, to try to reinforce that, have taken steps to prevent uh, uh, foreign steel from somehow coming through Canada and getting a Canadian label slapped onto it. He likes to see that. He likes to see that us being part of the team, not fighting against it. So at the moment, I doubt he would do that to us. But I say I doubt. I can't, I can't take that to bed at night because the man is so unpredictable. And unfortunately, Bill, I think he's the kind of person that if, if things started to turn against him, politically started to turn against him, he would need to do something to, again, refocus the attention on him. So I would say anything is possible with him. And, of course, if he did do something like that, that would roil the markets once again. But, you know, if he was being logical, I think that threat is off the table for now. But he's not a logical man. Yeah, and on that note, we'll pack it in. Marvin, thanks as always. Great having you back on here. My pleasure, Bill. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about the, the incident that occurred at Gage Park this weekend. Uh, this was Pride Week, of course, and uh, the culmination with a, a celebration uh, that was supposed to be happening at Gage Park. And in fact, it did happen at Gage Park, but there was yet again another altercation between LGBTQ protesters and anti-LGBTQ protesters, basically. Uh, There were those that were there to celebrate. There were those that were there that just wanted anarchy, I suppose. Uh, The mayor has spoken up about this. The uh, deputy chief of police has spoken up about this. We want to tell you that we uh, did reach out uh, to Pride Hamilton to try to get some one of their representatives on the program for this segment of the show. But uh, they said they will not be speaking to the media about this matter at this time. Uh, that they want to spend some time debriefing and talking uh, with the community in preparation for 2020 and finding out what strategies they're going to have going forward. It's an incident that shouldn't have happened, quite frankly, and uh, there's a lot of questions about how this was handled. Joining us to talk about this is Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Uh, Laura, first and foremost, uh, this, this is a black eye to this community once again. Yeah, I was actually uh, asked to do some Toronto media on it this morning because um, while there have been some activities at other Pride festivals, and I think Dunville and in, and in Barry, there were some other incidents. The Hamilton, of course, uh, Pride event was a really big one, and uh, there's a lot of video from the event, and so it obviously got the concern of not just other media bill, but also we saw um, the spokesperson for the or the uh, MP on point for the Prime Minister on these issues send out a tweet about this, decrying it and denouncing it, and, and the Prime Minister retweeted it. So it, it's, I don't know if I'd say it's a black eye on the Hamilton community, but it certainly is newsworthy, and people are looking at Hamilton and wondering, okay, what's going on there? You know, we have these, these sort of Saturday protests uh, that are happening at City Hall, uh, we, that, uh, where people are, you know, anti-immigration, and there's some, I think, co-opting of the Yellow Vest movement in, the, in, in Europe, um, so there's some of this stuff going on at City Hall, but then to have it uh, erupt at Pride, it seems to be escalating. So it's definitely a concern. The, I think the country is watching Hamilton. Uh, but uh, at this point, I, I don't want to give the credit to these people that they're putting a black eye on our city. I just think that they are causing alarm, and it's something that we have to address as a city. Shouldn't we have seen this coming? Uh, you, you referred to the uh, the displays and, and the, the, the protests that go on in front of City Hall, and that's been happening for a while. Of course, anybody who's driven past there on the weekend sees the yellow vests. Uh, and with, with that going on, and they know that was going to be going on again, and with Pride Week and the celebrations that were going to be happening at Gage Park, uh, should we not have been wary that there was a possibility for something like this once again? Yeah, and so this is the thing that's very frustrating, Bill, is that you know, we have a couple of different things here. You mentioned anarchy off the top, I and mean, we did have that episode with the anarchists uh, last, what was it, last year on Lockstreet. Yeah. And now a different group, different, different set of concerns. But there was a concern raised at that time, how quickly did the police respond to that incident, right? And then we have these protests happening at City Hall where not just these sort of yellow vests or these, uh, these fascist groups show up, but also you've got anti-fascist groups showing up and confronting them at City Hall. So this is happening fairly regularly and and it and it begs the question if the city has a zero tolerance policy against hate what does that look like in practical terms you know i mean of course freedom of speech and expression is important to canadian values but 
hate speech is different. So does the city really have a zero tolerance policy? Then you have the fact that the city had a white supremacist, a renowned white supremacist working in the IT department. A citizen sent a letter to the city for six months. It got ignored until, you know, some of us raised it publicly and then suddenly they investigated it. So there's not a lot of good track record recently on how well Hamilton takes these things seriously and whether or not zero policy, zero tolerance actually means that. And so then you had this weekend where the Pride organizers anticipated this. They did have a meeting with police, but they're suggesting, at least some people are suggesting on social media, that the police did not follow through on the plan. And even Pride Hamilton sent out a statement saying that upon reflection, they don't think the police responded quickly enough. Uh, so, I mean, you have to look, I think, at all of that in context and say, you know, we're not the only place where these kind of protests are happening in this and this rise of neo-fascism and all the rest of it. Uh, but why is Hamilton seemingly behind a step on it? Why, why is it that it keeps happening here? And are we all talk or are we really doing something about it? And I think that's a very valid question to be put to the mayor and to the city police. Well, and let's let's delve into that if we could, because this is uh, actually a combination, and and uh, not even the culmination, but a continuation, I guess, of some of the, uh, shall we say, acrimonious relationship between the city and and Pride. Uh, and you know, we've we, we've talked with Pride representatives over the last week about the fact that their uh, advisory committee, of course, uh, had some suggestions uh, that the mayor and city council essentially ignored when it came to Pride Week, which caused a rift right off the bat. And and then this occurs here. You really have to question uh, the commitment that the city has. Here. They're certainly talking the talk, but are they walking the walk? Well, this is the thing. So if these protests are allowed to happen on in front of City Hall for a court on the weekends by, you know, fascists spewing hate and, and potentially violence against other citizens, uh, the city and the police effectively dealing with that. And then you have to look at the concerns from the LGBT. TQ uh, plus community advisory group when they said if you put up the pride flag essentially at this stage in what's happening with the city it's just more of a costume it doesn't have that it doesn't resonate because they don't feel as though the city's made the strides on equity that it's promised it would make they don't feel as though um, you know having a white supremacist there and having a letter to the HR department and it not being acted on for six months when this person had access to the city's IT, they don't feel, and I think rightly so, that the city is is um, living up to its equity standards. So that's a discussion and an important discussion that they need to be having and advising city council on. But when you have something happen like this on the weekend, where not only do they feel as though the plan that the police had wasn't implemented the way that they were going to implement it, it's certainly not quickly enough, uh, you also have, Bill, what's very disturbing to me are some accounts on social media from atten- attendees at the at the event that say that, you know, there might have been a police officer say something to the effect of, well, you know what, you don't want us here in our uniform, so, you know, <laughs> you know too bad kind of thing. And is that really something that's happening? Are, are there police officers, because of this tension with not just Pride here in Hamilton, but Pride in certainly other cities, right, that won't allow the police to come in uniform, is this kind of a way of saying, well, we're not going to jump to protect you. So I hope that's not the case. I don't want to I don't want to uh, attribute a police officer having said that without evidence of the police officer saying that, but there are accounts that from people who were there who say that a police officer did say that. So if there's a cultural issue happening at the City of Hamilton Police Department that in some way is not giving the kind of treatment to these uh, these events, these pride events, that they would give to, say, if protesters showed up at the Around the Bay race or something, right? Would the police response be the same? Uh, I think that's a very important question. Is the city living up to its language around a zero tolerance towards hate? And is the police department um, dealing with some sort of cultural issues that might suggest that they're giving they're not giving pride activities the same sort of support they would give to other activities? And we need to know the answer to that. You know, these are vulnerable these are vulnerable people, and we have a vulnerable population. And we all have to stand up and say it's not okay. It's not okay that they are being bullied and harassed and, and violently attacked. You know, um, we have to be doing better than that as a city, just period. So we need to find out these answers. There are so many different examples of this. And, you know, we talked about a few of them and the city council's attitude toward this. And I guess we could throw into that the fact that uh, the LGBTQ community was upset that uh, some of the candidates that put their names up for the police services board uh, from that community uh, we did not get the position. And, and of course, there's a process, and try, the city tried to defend that. But it, it's piling on, Laura. It's just one thing on top mm-hmm. of another that causes this kind of apprehension. 
And also, we've seen some response statements that seem to be tone deaf, right? When the when it was exposed by Vice News, so this is not even. You know, there was a local reporter who was working on the story about the white supremacists working at City Hall, but it was Vice News that sort of blew it open. Uh, and even the response from the mayor's office uh, at that point wasn't good enough, right? It was just kind of again, oh, zero tolerance here in Hamilton, blah blah. But it it didn't actually address the fact that wait a second, this person's still working in the city, <laughs> you know, and has access to IT. What do, what does that mean? You know, our vulnerable populations potentially being victimized, but we didn't know. And so it was the new city manager who said they were serious and would investigate right away. But the initial response from the mayor's office seemed to be tone deaf to the severity of the concern. And I think that, you know, um, one of the things people really like about Mayor Fred is that he, he's, he's pretty easygoing. He doesn't get, you know, he's not overdramatic. Uh, but I think, we, uh, to your point, there's a piling on of concern here. It's, it's getting bigger. And we need very strong leadership, condemnation, and solutions. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's important to condemn it wholly, but we also need to say, okay, well, what does that look like? What does that mean? What will the police response be to uh, these groups in the future? And, and are the people in the LGBTQ community getting the kind of support they deserve as citizens in our city? We really have to answer those questions. Let's talk about the relationship between police and, and that community. Uh, and you're right, this is not unique to Hamilton. Uh, we, we know even in Toronto, of course, the Pride Parade, which traditionally happens at the first part of July, uh, police have not been invited or actually told not to show up. Uh, more directly, uh, there's been an acrimonious relationship between police and the LGBTQ community for quite some time. But I read the res- press release, as you did, Laura, that uh, they issued about this just a little while ago. And uh, they expressed some concern about how police responded to this. And and p- to put this into context, given what happened with Lock Street uh, in, in that terrible incident, and I know it's a different group, but, but the same idea, it's fear. And given what was going on with the with the the yellow vests and with the the rally that was going on, was the response appropriate? And 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 did they do enough uh, to try to prevent something like this? I know they've said they they want to make sure that doesn't happen going forward. What about what did happen? Well, this is the thing. So you see that the police are saying in media statements that there were minor injuries. At- on social media, someone says that someone's nose was broken, that one of the Pride people celebrating Pride got their nose broken. So I feel as though there's, there's, uh, we're hearing two different stories, and that's why there needs to be an accounting of what happened. Like, what really happened? Who was really injured or hurt? Um, what was said? When was it said? Did the police have a plan that they'd agreed to with pr- the Pride organizers, and then they just waited a bit to act on it? Why, if they waited? What was their rationale? Uh, those comments may suggesting, you know what, uh, if you're going to treat us badly by saying we can't show up to things in our uniforms, then you can see what it's like not to have our services. I mean, I hope that didn't happen, but there are allegations that that did. So I think, Bill, there has to be uh, a really serious accounting publicly of what's happening in these instances. What can we expect from the police? And and I think somebody, uh, it was a tweet someone sent to me, which I, I just think was right on point. If this was something, if these groups showed up yelling at, you know, runners in the around the bay race, would the police act the way that they did on Saturday? Or is there a different standard when it comes to pride? Uh, we really have to have an understanding of that because any marginalized population that is not protected, you know, whether you're LGBTQ or not, if you're, if you don't feel that you're being protected, if there's marginalized populations among us in our city that aren't getting the same protection as other groups, that's a real problem, you know, and so we, we can't allow anyone who's marginalized um, to be bullied and harassed and not given the support and the protection that they, they deserve from the police. So this is not going to be something that they can just keep sweeping under the carpet. As, as we mentioned, this has gone federal now. There's there's other media watching Hamilton saying, you know, what is happening here? Why are we looking like we're a boiling pot for this kind of racism uh, and this kind of violence? And, and you know, one incident is one thing, but we, as you point out, we've seen a building of this, and, and I think we need more leadership. Go back to Lock Street for just a second. And now I want to talk about the second incident on Lock Street, not the anarchist and the, and the vandalism, mm-hmm. uh, because there were major questions about the police response to that, and we had the chief on, and they explained exactly what the protocol was, and whether you liked it or not. But if you recall, Laura, some weeks after that, there was supposed to be a quote-unquote peaceful rally at Victoria mm-hmm. Park, which was going to march down Lock Street, and it was going to be on a Sunday morning. 
Uh, the police showed up in force on the other side of the street to make sure that they stuck to the sidewalk and didn't do anything else because they anticipated the possibility of something going on. Where was that kind of response on Saturday? Well, this is the thing, too. I think we have to be extremely uh, careful and critical of how these stories are even being portrayed, right? When, when you see headlines like there was a, a back-and-forth or a squirmish or an incident between two groups, that's almost like a false equivalency. You know, that reminds me of there's good people on both sides comment from the president when we had that racist rally that happened in the U.S. last year. You know, the, the pr- people who are at Pride were there to celebrate Pride and unity and love. Uh, they were not part of creating the chaos, right? And I think we have to be very careful as a society to, to call it out as it is. A group of people showed up to provoke a confrontation, and those people are the ones responsible, and those people are the ones that we have to prepare for and route out and charge if it's appropriate, right? And so this idea of waiting to see what happens or waiting to see how the people, you know, at Pride deal with it. I don't think that that's appropriate, given what we've learned about these groups. And if you look at the fact, Bill, there are two things that I thought were really dramatic and really important for us to pay attention to. One was that we had these anti-fascist um, people, citizens with pink face masks or pink face veils, and they put up that big black fabric to block the hate being spewed by these, by these you know, street-preaching evangelicals. You know, that was a peaceful attempt to try to not only, uh, you know, keep them away from the, the people celebrating Pride, but also to block their hateful messages. So those people were not there to fight. They were there to block and avoid. And I, I don't think we can put them in the same category as the ones who show up to fight. The other thing is you had our former city councilor, Matthew Green, literally down there to protect the citizens. I mean, we now have to have you know, former city councilors going down there to act as a bit of a human shield. I, I just think it's ridiculous. Um, this is the police's job, and if the police underestimated the threat, why? If the police knew the threat but didn't, you know, execute on their strategy in a timely manner, as Pride is suggesting, why? What, what is the delay? What is the expectation? As you point out, they, they were there in force, but it was Lock Street, uh, you know, lots of merchants there were concerned, lots of police out, that's great. What about at Pride? You know, at what point do they get the guarantee that they're going to get the same kind of protection? And, and that's a question I don't think we should let uh, the mayor or the police chief or anybody else off on until we have a clear sense of fairness. Too many questions, not enough answers at this stage. Uh, Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Uh, always a pleasure, Laura. Thanks so much for this. Thanks, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.